The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK. And it is the Thursday Club. And we're going to be looking ahead to this Saturday's SW6 Derby, reflecting on a weekend where Fulham didn't play. And wasn't it... Wasn't it quite nice? Just admit it. Uh, and also, we're going to be talking Tyrese Francois, Fulham's fatal final 15-minute collapses, and the social media boycott by Premier League and Football League clubs that's coming this weekend. As I mentioned, it is the Thursday Club, so I've got Peter Rutzler here. Hello, Peter. Hey, Sammy. How you doing? Fine, thank you. And Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. Hello, Sammy. Hello, Peter. How are we doing? Fine, thank you. How are both of your respective house moves? Yeah, slow and steady. Slow and steady. I'm commuting back home because there's no there's oh, okay. no internet at my new place. So it's uh, it is it's become. I feel like one of those people who moves into the city for like four days in a week and then goes back to their family apart from doing it in a complete reverse order. I move back to my oh, family okay. four days a week <laughs> and then go back to the flat for the weekend. So, um, so yeah, slow and steady such a modern house moving problem no internet isn't it this, this is, didn't used to be a thing back in my day um and peter how's yours uh, you do seem to be into yours so you you're one step ahead of jack and you actually have some working internet well yeah working internet but it's, it's mobile hotspot so i'm in the same sort of boat but it's, it's doing a really good job this morning i have to say uh lovely weather as well but lots of light in the flat so that's keeping me happy and yeah it's going well Beautiful. Have you done your uh, jaunt down to Craven Cottage? Yeah, I'd say you're walking distance now. Now you're in Wandsworth. I haven't yet. I haven't yet. I've done a, I've done a few rounds of Wandsworth, but I haven't, I haven't got down to the cottage yet. But there's still time. There's still time. Well, there's not lots of time, to be fair, with the season coming <laughs> quite <be> short. <laughs> I got to the cottage yesterday, Sammy. So that's exciting. Um, oh, yeah. How, how's it look? I mean, um, everyone seems to get annoyed when they ask for updates of the Riverside stand, but I'm genuinely interested to know how it looks because I don't live around there anymore and I don't see it on a daily basis. It's a building site. Um, would be my take on on the matter. Um, it look it, it's going up. <laughs> that's that's all I have to offer you. It's going up, and it looks like it's more up than it was the last time I saw it when I was there. So it's moving along, but I, I don't have any details to to share with you on the metal work. You're such a part of the building site FC brigade. It's so upsetting. At least Peter likes to share a nice photo of it every once in a while. Peter, Peter, I can get on board with. Everyone loves the photos. Well, there was getting some sort of pushback against the photos, although they still they do quite well. It's quite nice to see all the seats go in and, and everything else. It does change quite quickly. I do think you have a slight advantage, Peter, is that you're allowed to take it from inside yeah, the ground. True. Obviously, <laughs> everyone can go to the other side of the river and take a photo from from Putney. That's quite easy. Getting inside the ground is actually more access than most people are able to get at the moment. So I think maybe that's why you get less pushback. I, lo- I enjoy them. Anyone that posts a photo of the Riverside stand at me on Twitter and I'll, I'll give you a like. I'll appreciate you. OK, let's get on to um, the weekend's results that very much didn't go our way jack um your final words of last podcast was you wolves um you wolves did not do us a favor in the slightest no you wolves actually basically killed the relegation zone the relegation fight dead didn't they um look i think you could uh, there's an argument to be made that wolves 
uh, have after scoring against us in the 93rd minute and then letting Burnley walk all over them 4-0, have done more to you know instigate our relegation than almost any other side in the Premier League aside from Fulham. Um, so, <laughs> so there is uh, not not particularly pleased with the uh, the old gold over over Wolverhampton. To be honest, um, not, this is not what I was after at all, frankly. Yeah, I mean, Peter, I feel like the only result that did actually go our way in the end was maybe West Brom not winning because uh, we might be able to cling on to 18th. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, silver linings and all that, Sammy. I mean, it does sound like you're clutching a bit there, but uh, at least they're getting the, the same rough treatment when it comes to the last 15 minutes and that Fulham aren't alone in, on that front. But but yeah, as you say, I mean, Wolves did not do any favours at all. Brighton lost. Brighton did lose, which is interesting because I still don't consider them to be in this at all. But they do just have an uncanny ability to be shit. Yeah, 100%. Um, look, I, again, it, I hate to be the, the bearer of optimism. Um, but but Brighton are probably now the only side that Fulham could catch. Um, and and look, imagine how well that tweet will age if um, if we do actually catch Brighton. But I, I do think seven points is a tall order. Seven points plus a massive goal difference, so effectively eight points. Yeah, okay. I don't know what to make of Brighton. I you know I mean they they seem to be okay. Everything else seems to be fine with them. I mean they're similar to Fulham in that they score they can't score goals, but. I mean, they, they, I, haven't, I don't generally see too many poor performances. I mean, by all accounts, they did quite well against Sheffield United, except the fact that they, they lost. So, I, you know, I, I've not really sort of seen them. But if we're actually looking at it now, and if we want to be to take the, the Jack optimism stance, you know, you, if, you, if you're saying that Burnley, Newcastle may be still on the fringes, then maybe you look at Southampton too, <laughs> if we're really pulling it. Because obviously Fulham play Southampton as well. Um, it's sort of been forgotten a little bit in this running, and, and Burnley as well. And, you know, if somehow Fulham can can get the wins. Obviously, we haven't seen too many of them this year. But if they can, I mean, that's six points to those two teams as well. Um, the goal difference isn't a million miles away with either of them. I mean, Jack, if you're looking at um, runs that have killed Fulham, though, you can look at Wolves and Brighton or whatever. Newcastle getting eight points out of Spurs at home, Burnley away, West Ham at home and Liverpool away. Now, I know that we're home and away doesn't matter that much this season. But even so, that run of sides three out of the four of them chasing Champions League. One of them, you know, a really impressive Burnley side that we saw at the weekend. Um, if there's something that's actually sent Fulham down, it's that run that when we spoke to Chris Woff less than a month ago, you never could have seen that coming. No, he said they did, he didn't know if they'd win another game, right? And they've won two Jordan, two of their last four. So they've turned up when it mattered and they've scored goals when it matters and they've won games when it mattered and and ultimately Fulham haven't been able to do that in the periods where you know we we talked about and we we looked at that Leeds game and the Wolves game but the Arsenal game I think obviously the manner of it hurt but maybe that's actually something you look at quite separately because to go to Arsenal and and get three points would have been you know the first time Fulham had ever done that in the, in the modern era so it, it does feel like you know those are the games where Fulham needed to get the job done and instead settled for points. And Newcastle have have gone and won games, gone and got results when they needed to. And, and that's the difference between them staying up and us looking like we're going down, unfortunately. Peter, it is remarkable, given the stick that Steve Bruce was getting less than a month ago, that insipid defeat they had at Brighton, 3-0. To turn it around to this... I mean, Newcastle fans won't want to hear it, but Steve Bruce deserves some credit. Yes, Sam Maximan and Wilson returning have helped, but it, it cannot all just be down to two players. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the heat he was taking, the pressure, the noise, I mean, the abuse, really, um, during that period. And, and to somehow 
not just pull the results out the bag, that's one thing, but to keep that dressing room fighting, you know, he seems to have put together some kind of siege mentality there. You know, there were all the stories that were coming out about Matt Ritchie and and others uh, that sort of discontent, and yet somehow that they have all pulled together, they have got their the ducks in order and, and, and have been able to pull off these results. And, you know, you can't overlook the impact of, of Alan Sam Maxman, as, as you mentioned, and um, Callum Wilson hasn't really returned yet. Uh, I mean, he's only played, you know, a couple of games off the bench during this run. So, um, you know, that, that that's that that's one key difference. But fair play to Steve Bruce because to, to come under the fire that he's come under, and you know, to put Newcastle in this position where they are essentially about what win away now for absolute certainty um, for for uh, for survival. That's that's been remarkably impressive. Uh, and Jack, I guess with Newcastle, sorry, this hasn't turned into Newcastle-ish. It's just interesting <laughs> considering the yeah tunish considering the predicament it's put us in. Um, the Athletic does have a Newcastle podcast, which uh, you're more than welcome to listen to anytime you like if you're enjoying the Newcastle chatter today. Um, has been the arrival of Aloni and Aloni that's very much worked for Newcastle in the name of Joe Willock. Um, his ability to find goals, especially late on in matches, has been. Well, being a real like a, a savior for, for Newcastle, particularly the point that they got at Anfield, which I think may be what sees them safe. Yeah, it's the antithesis of Fulham, isn't it? He comes on late and scores goals, um, and and I suppose that that that's it, isn't it? That's the difference. That's the that's the changing of the guard, and and when you look at him and when you look at what he's offered, it's been brilliant for for them, and and it's been one of those moves that's just worked out for both parties. So. Yeah, I mean, look, full credit to, to whoever decided to, to bring him in from a, from a Newcastle perspective, who, who saw that as, as what could be the answer to, to a lack of creativity, a lack of engine in that kind of attacking midfield area that gave them something new and, and, and something different in, in that rotation. And yeah, it, look, when, when things work out, they work out. And, and, and this is definitely one that's worked out from a Newcastle perspective. And it's a sad thing for Fulham because it, it could be what you know, ends up condemning us to the drop. But you know, at the same time, can you you know you look at you look at those January signings and they're brought in to, to make an impact. That's exactly what what he's done, uh, and you, you can't really knock that. I mean, I'm a bit worried, Peter. There seems to be a real negativity in the fan base about the concept of loans, and I totally understand it. Fulham have been probably too reliant on loans in the last two to three years, and and the clear scapegoat of the loan strategy at the moment is Ruben Loftus Cheek, right? And we're seeing. Jesse Lingard have a successful loan. We're seeing Joe Willock have a successful loan from a kind of Super League club to a uh, normal Premier League club. And our loan hasn't worked out. I'm worried that in the future, the fan base is going to be completely dismissive of all loans, despite the fact that in moderation they can work. But maybe Fulham have just pushed it a little bit too far in the last couple of years. Uh, maybe I think I think when we're talking about the last couple of years, and then maybe you look to the championship season after relegation and Knockart and Cavallero and the big fees that came after them. I think that's 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 more of a fair criticism. Um, I think when you look at this season, it's hard not to detach the reality of the you know of the market at the moment, and you know and. and there's, there's two sides to it. You know, I'm not going to just say, oh, it's because of the COVID, uh, all clubs are looking at loans because they're cost effective. They are. I mean, you know, there's been reports about Tammy Abraham at Chelsea, for instance, not being uh, like he may may leave and then there's some big fees being touted around. But realistically, are they going to happen? You know, in, the money isn't there in the same way to, to, to be spent. And so when you when you do bring in these loan players, it's a, it's a convenient method. If you're looking at 
say Fulham coming into this season with that with a tight turnaround at the start of the year, and you're thinking, okay, do do the club then invest in the same way they did two years ago, and then does that therefore translate into a more guaranteed outcome of success? And you know, we the the reality is the implications of two years ago are still being felt. You know, if 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 we can see the the financial fair play limits as 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 as, as Tony Khan has talked about. Uh, we'll get a clearer picture when we see the, the club's finances, um, just what sort of limits there are there. So it's hard to be uh, certain on that. But but when you do consider those factors and put them together, you can you make a case for loans. And like, obviously, I mean, Ruben Loftus-Cheek hasn't worked out. I think we can all be pretty clear on that. It, it came in with the expectation that he was going to try and uh, kick on like he did at Crystal Palace. Target was the Euros. From Chelsea perspective, it was to get one of their a player that they value very, very highly to get him back up to speed. Fulham, it was the player that was going to provide that attacking impetus, you know, link up with Mitrovic, and that hasn't worked in all different ways. Um, and there's no getting away from that; it hasn't hasn't worked in the way he wanted. I wouldn't say he's been terrible, but because of the expectations that have been on him, he hasn't lived up to them. And I think that's that's fair. I mean, we we can get quite drastic about how players have done and how they haven't done in in the context of what is a Fulham team that were battling the drop. Um, but in terms of some of the other loans, I mean, they've all generally been been a success. And I guess the the main qualm is, you know, do you want to develop another team's players? Uh, and that's 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 the the thing you weigh up. Now, if Fulham stay up, a good deal of those loan players could become permanents, and then you're looking at a different sort of reality. Um, Olaen has got an option. Uh, Marilamina has got an obligation. Um, if Fulham stay up, uh, Alfonso Ariola has got an option as well. Um, no guarantees, of course, if they join Fulham, but you know they're they're there. There's a there's a there's a pathway, and it's the ones like Adamola Lukman or, or Joachim Anderson, um, where there aren't those options there uh, that, that probably cause a bit more disappointment. Um, but you know, I, I, there's always two sides to it, and I think you can, there's always the sense that loans are bad, loans are good. I, I don't, you can't, you can't really operate like that, and especially at the moment, I don't, th- I don't think you can detach the fact that. You know, it's 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 a difficult market. I mean, you look at the signings that were made permanently, they were brought in on very, very cheap money um, as well. So, I mean, uh, there, there's definitely pros and cons. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I, I would add to that. It's like one of those things where Loftus-Cheek has, you know, I, I've kind of come around to, I, I did, I was with Peter in that up to the last couple of weeks, uh, I thought that he was maybe getting slightly more stick than he deserved, but I think his performances of late have been incredibly insipid. Um, and, and, and that has, I think, come to a boiling point where people are like, this is the point where we're supposed to be scrapping for our lives and in, insipid performances at this point are just not what you need. And there is that element where he just seems to be half a yard short. Um, and I, I think it's mental. You know, we said this at the start. It's like that worry about aggravating the injury It's the worry at this point of the season, especially, I think, about aggravating the injury. There's one thing doing it in October, in November. But if you go a year out on loan, supposed to, you know, fix your fitness and, and get you minutes and whatever, and then you aggravate the injury again in May in a club that looks consigned to the drop, then then maybe that's going to weigh heavy on him. And, and look, that's not me. That's not an excuse as far as I'm concerned. I, I think that should not be ever considered as, you know, anything worthwhile. And if that is how he feels about things, then don't play him. Um, because, you know, we need people in there scra- fighting for every ball, scrapping for every ball, and it doesn't look like he is doing that at the moment. What I would say is that if Fulham had spent £30 million on Ruben Loftus-Cheek last summer, 
we would be looking at this in a far harsher light. No, we would be like on top brass wages on, you know, probably the most you know expensive player at the club. Probably would have probably broken club records. We would have probably given him the top wage at the club. And if he had then turned in performances of this nature, we would be saying, what on earth was that? At least the loan system in this regard, I think, gives you the option to be like, no, that was bad. That was bad. I don't want anything to do with that. Like, and and we, we should not exercise any options on on trying to bring him in or any any funds or anything. And, and that is, I suppose, the beauty of the loan system in some ways. You get to you get to look at people. You do get to try before you buy. Um and and I would argue that maybe the bigger failures are not getting players like Joachim Anderson on options, on on Adamola Lookman on options, because if there is, you know, Fulham do get relegated and you do have those options. There is at least then a pathway to say, look, believe in us, we believe in you, we think we can get straight back up next season if you give us that year. And 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 I think not having those options is actually a bigger failure because it means that we are set to lose the spine of this team. I, look, and that's not me defending the loan system. I think the loan system, as you say, Sammy, has potentially been stretched a little bit further than it needs to be. But actually the failure to secure options on players instead of just getting clean-cut loans is arguably the bigger failure for me than the idea of a Loftus-Cheek coming in on loan because at least at the end of a Loftus-Cheek loan, it's not been good, it's been bad, and, and it's not you know what we wanted it to be. But a lot of people were excited when he came in. You know, and a lot of fans were were thinking this is this is a player who I think can elevate us, can can push us forward. He hasn't lived up to that, and now we send him back and be like, nope, thank you very much. That is, we are not going to be paying thirty million pounds for that player because he is not worth it, and and that's where we are. Is there a connection? Andre Scherler came from up the road. Ruben Loftus Cheek came from up the road. Do we just should like Damien Duff it's... came from up the road? Biani Goldbeck came from up the road. Maybe, maybe. I guess more recent history maybe hasn't uh, fallen on them kindly. John Harley came from up the road, not directly, but yeah, I think so. Wayne Bridge yeah. came from up the road on loan. He was our best player that season. He was he was a great player on loan that season. He really was. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then afterwards we've got lots to get into, including Tyrese Francois and Fulham's fatal final fifteen minutes. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James here and I'm joined by Peter Rutzler. Hello. And Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. Peter, few pieces in The Athletic um, of note this week from a Fulham perspective that, that you've put out. And, and the first of those, which came out yesterday as we record, um, was a chat and a, and, a, and a profile on Tyrese Francois. Now, not a player that obviously we'll be hugely familiar with unless we regularly see ourselves at under 23 games and given the restrictions this year that's not really possible for for the majority of supporters um an australian player who said to model himself on andre iniesta not a not a bad player to model yourself on though is it no 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 i mean he's he, that's his, his sort of role model and his icon and he's uh yeah he's had an, he had an interesting story an interesting journey to fulham it's it's unusual to have an aussie uh come through the ranks but uh you know, he moved to london when he was 14 with his family um i had a quirky link actually into how he joined fulham it was through his uncle uh, who owns a nightclub with Lee Chapman, the former lead striker, who knew someone at Fulham, and that's how the family came to Fulham's attention. So quite a, quite an unusual link that. Um, but, you know, he and his brother Marley, uh, Marley Francois, both joined, were in Fulham's ranks. Marley left at 16. He's now at Bristol City. Uh, signed a pro contract last month. Uh, he's more of a tricky winger as opposed to, to Tyrese, who's a, quite a versatile midfielder. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I spoke to him after the under-23s game on Monday. Uh, the 23s have had... 
a, a difficult season. I think they haven't they haven't played as well as I think they they would have liked. They haven't picked up the points they would have liked. Uh, they played Leeds United, who are on course to win the the Premier League Two Division Two. That's the the league they play in. Um, Leeds have been able. I've been using quite a few senior players when Fulham went to Four Parch uh, in December. You know, they I think Helder Costa started. Tyler Roberts started, Ian, uh, Ivan Pervader uh, featured as well. Um, and they, but basically Marcelo Bielsa has just made sure that the reserves and the first team bubble are the same. So there's a lot more transition between them. Uh, whereas at Fulham, there's two separate uh, bubbles and also two separate bases, really. Um, the, the under-23s and the under-18s, they have a whole new setup that has been built at, uh, at LSE, as we've talked about before on the on the on the podcast, um, so it's been it's been a little bit uh, different. Um, and for players like Tyrese, uh, who was training with the first team at the start of the season, it's become that bit harder to get back into it. Um, Tyrese injured his hamstring; he was out for four months, uh, so he's had a bit of a setback. Um, but he's he's made a couple of first team appearances. He appeared against uh, Sheffield Wednesday in the Carabao Cup. Um, he was involved under Svisi Kanovic um, during uh, the Fulham's previous Premier League stay. Um, he went on a mid-season tour to Mercia with the with the first team squad. Came off the bench again in the in the Carabao Cup. So yeah, he's very well thought of, um, and uh, he, he you know it's good to to, to to catch up with him and, and give a sort of a profile for a young player who you know has, has shown a lot of potential really. And uh, at twenty, still got a few years ahead of him. And you know if we are looking at the championship next season, then players like Francois and, and Fabio Carvalho will be wanting to really push on and see if they can get involved in pre-season and then potentially see if they could have some sort of squad role. But um, it's uh, it's always always a challenge jumping from the 23s, but it's been good to see him back playing and he's he's now featured in seven consecutive games since his injury. So uh, he's he's doing well. I think it's really interesting next season, Fulham, assuming we do go back to the championship and and can we get these players in into the first team? You remember that not so long ago, Steven Sessegnon, you know, started a run of games for Fulham at the beginning of the championship season. We all thought it was going to be his Ryan Sessegnon moments, but he made a couple of mistakes, particularly one against Nottingham Forest that meant Fulham conceded quite an important goal and, and he never really got his place back in the team. But I'd like to hope with a, with a full pre-season as, as you mentioned Peter yes we'll be chasing promotion yes there'll be tense games where it's not um, sensible to throw in a youngster for his debut but I think next season is maybe a bit of a watershed moment in like can we get some of these players minutes and and hopefully the kind of amount of games in the championship will allow Fulham to do that because we will need to use more players I think it's interesting. I think we'll, we'll definitely delve into this in, in more detail as, as you know, relegation becomes more of a reality. I mean, as it looks like that's the direction of travel at the moment. But uh, as you say, you know, the, it could well be a, a watershed moment because of the loans in the squad, because of those who will leave, because of those who will stay, how much of the, the old core that haven't really featured this year, how much are they going to be involved next year? Uh, who are the club going to look to bring in? How are they going to do it? Uh, and which of these young players can can stake a claim? So there, there, there's certainly an opening there. And of course, the balance is if Fulham do want to make sure that they are absolutely cruising it next year and making their, their way straight back, which I think they 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 should be doing and I'm in a position to do so. Um, does that then again limit what these younger players can offer? And I think that's that's going to be quite an interesting sort of question. And I guess it also, you know, it, it looks at what Fulham also want to be. And I wonder how much of a sort of a reflective period it will it will become where you say, well what what do 
Fulham want to put emphasis on? How important is it that Fulham get back into the Premier League and become a stable club again? Or was it, is there going to be a more gradual approach? And maybe you could have said that was there was a look to do that in the Championship last season um, to an extent, you know, with Scott Parker and, and building it. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, inflection, I think. In, in Fulham's story and I, I, four young players that they'll all be looking and seeing what, what the sort of next step will be what sort of opportunities they will have because there are some talented young players in that team and um, it's just about getting the balance right because at the same time you throw in a, a young player who's not ready for it into an environment where the team are expected to win every week and suddenly that's really really counterproductive so it's a hard it's a hard one to strike um, but you know it's, it's, it will be a very interesting juncture yeah, I, I'm interested in it because, you know, we saw, I think the case of Matt O'Reilly is, is key here, right? And we spent so long talking about Matt O'Reilly and then he left the club and spent a little while without a club and then went to MK Dons and started to, you know, put in some some impressive performances in League One. Now he's been looked at by championship, championship sides already for next season and you're suddenly like, okay, Maybe maybe we did go too early and not give him a contract. But at the same time, the rumours around him were, oh, Dortmund are interested in him. And then, you know, to end up at MK Dons is a very different juncture in your career as to end up at Dortmund. So it is easy to it's easy for us to overestimate players, I think, from the youth sides. And, uh, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, about Kieran Bowie and about Jay Stansfield and about not throwing players in at the deep end before they're ready. Um balance that with the fact that you know Tyrese Francois uh, and, and Carvalho are, are incredibly talented footballers who who are looked at as some people who have long-term futures with the club Carvalho especially um and, and I, I do think it's about getting the minutes Fulham have obviously given the least minutes to academy graduates of anyone this season in the Premier League um we haven't really seen anyone break through apart from Ryan Sessegnon in, in, in recent years, ML Heinemann perhaps, and then that move to Bournemouth that didn't work out. He's over in MLS playing for Atlanta and, and doing fine, but you know it's that, that's a very different kettle of fish. Uh, and to see someone break through the academy, I think, and, and go on to make it would, would be a welcome boost for the academy because, as you say, there is category you know one status. There is the fact that the Fulham Academy is regarded very highly, but also, you know, at some point, Fulham fans are going to want to see the, the rewards of that. If it is going to be something you do want to see players coming through that pipeline and, and becoming part of the first team stature. And, and I think that that's something that if we can see next year will be a massive morale boost to everyone involved. I was going to say, I mean, morale boost is the interesting point, Jack, because there is, you see that with Arsenal a little bit. And it's interesting how sort of Mikel, Mikel Arteta has sort of been perceived. Now, obviously, there's some really talented young players they've got on their books there, but Emil Smith-Rowe coming in, Bakayo Saka, uh, Martinelli, I mean, he was brought in, he was signed in. But at the same time, when you do have that uh, injection of youth into a team, it really does give the fans a lift. There's a little bit more investment in them. There's a bit more patience with them. Um, but yeah, as, as, as we were saying before, there's a, there's a balance to strike. You know, if, if Fulham need to be winning games every week, can you be reliant on these players? Ideally, you'd want to be in positions in games where you are doing well enough to bring them on later and build up minutes that way and then really assess them. But... Uh, it doesn't always work out that way. And, you know, as Jack says, you know, it's one thing to score lots of goals at under 18 level um, and under 23 level. It's another thing entirely to do it, not just at Premier League or Championship level, but in the senior game as a, as a whole. Well, look at Troy Parrott, right? And Troy Parrott was seen at Spurs as the, the next great striker, you know, the next Harry Kane. That was how how they were talking about him in in youth level terms. And obviously I have a vested interest in Troy Parrott being good. Um, but like it, it is one of those things where he went on loan to the championship 
struggled massively for, for one minutes and two goals, has now gone to League One and is doing a little bit better, has leveled out a little bit. And look, he's still young. It's not me saying that he's not good enough. Harry Kane went on loan all over the place before he found his level. And I remember watching him at Leicester and being like, why are they bringing this clown on? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it did take a while for him to find his feet. And I think maybe the same is true of Parrot. But it's also one of those things where you can't chuck these players in immediately and be like, of course, they're going to score goals. Look how many they scored at youth level. It's easy to overestimate that, that underestimate that jump, I mean. Yeah, indeed. Well, another piece on The Athletic, Peter, um, is why Fulham's final 15 minutes of matches must make Fulham fans and Scott Parker nauseous. Um if ever there was a headline that reflected my feelings of ever watching a Fulham game, more accurately, I haven't seen one. Um, really interesting piece, Peter, and a lot of it reflecting on those kind of final crazy minutes at the Emirates Stadium, the seven minutes added time, and just the the catalogue of errors that that led to the, to the fatal outcome that probably is the is the game that has sealed Fulham's return to the championship. Of course, we'll talk about in part three about maybe some attempts to try and rectify that damage. But a really interesting piece, not necessarily one that will, will shock us, but I guess some of the statistics were damning. Um, Fulham having conceded 10 points after 75 minutes. In fact, that would be 12 points if you included the Sheffield United game where Fulham actually took the lead after the 50, after the 75th minute. Um, the statistics just in general really don't make pretty reading of how Fulham are performing in the final 15 minutes. And that is such a contrast to last season where we were so rock steady in the last 15 minutes of games. But I guess that was a league below. Yeah, it's that level up. And, uh, and you point to the headline. It's not exactly a headline that will get everyone very excited to read, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was interesting just to go back. And as you say, I think these are things that aren't necessarily surprising. But when you, act, when you can just lay them out and actually see them, you think, OK, I can see what's sort of happening here. And the Arsenal game was, in particular, was very interesting. Um, obviously, Fulham have had now three games consecutively where points have been dropped in the, in the final 15 minutes and all three games were different. I think we sort of discussed that before where, you know, our, the Arsenal game was very, very late. Um, Wolves was sort of with Fulham pressing and pushing, trying to get the winners, a different sort of dynamic. Uh, and then Villa, of course, was a sort of a, a collapse. Um, but the, the Arsenal one was interesting in that there are some, there are some common traits where things do go right. And, you know, and, and they're not wholly unexpected, especially when you're in the position Fulham are in, in terms of pressure, in terms of needing to see games out, of actually being in that position, because most of Fulham's games are generally decided by single goal margins, if that. Um, and that means that you are treading a fine line and small errors do count. Um, but in particular on the Arsenal game, just watching through that period, because you get to 75 minutes and Fulham, Fulham play very well in terms of retaining the ball, not taking too many risks and not not doing things that put the team under excess pressure. And it's interesting how that can just go out the window. I mean, there were two sort of elements I picked up on really, which were communication and, and decision-making, which uh, seem very straightforward, but then you actually play them out. And I think one example was, was Olerena just clearing the ball long, which was which was absolutely fine. You know, Fulham had just come out come, come under a period of pressure. I think there was an Arsenal corner and Harrison Reed nicked it back. A couple of passes. He then sidesteps Danny Ceballos. And then you can hear on the audio, you can hear someone shouting, away, away, away. Um, and you just wonder, I mean, why is that sense of panic, you know, that, that sort of change that suddenly goes along when there are actually three different options to retain possession and maybe Fulham can waste a few more seconds. Uh, I think there was another one where Anthony Robinson 
takes a throw in. Now, Robinson did brilliantly just before that, driving the ball up, lovely one-two with Loftus-Cheek. Uh, gets a throw in in the, in the Arsenal half and then takes it, chucks it into the box to Loftus-Cheek, um, who has no one anywhere near him. Um, he's surrounded by Arsenal players and it's just seeded possession. It's just, just those little tiny things just mean the pressure continues. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the goal. I mean, the fact is Arsenal scored... You know, with the, essentially the final attack of the game, and it was seven minutes of stoppage time and everything else. But these little things start to creep up in, the, in those moments, and it's actually trying to, to deal with those and actually trying to iron those creases out that, that can be the difference. And and you know, when you're in the Premier League, those are those are the sort of fine margins between, you know, staying in the division, picking up those points. I mean, ten or twelve points difference for Fulham. I mean, it's 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 crazy, really. And I, I think I think having watched the team all year, I think we all can recognise that. There is enough ability to get those points, but whether they have, not just on a technical side, but on the experience side and the mental side, whether they're able to actually get those points over the line is is, is perhaps a different thing. I mean, Jack, Scott has talked a lot since he came in about the importance of mental well-being in players. I mean, maybe not the, quite the right phrase there, but in terms of mindset, right? And how when he took over Fulham, they were a defeated club and he had to get in a psychologist to alter the mindset of, of the players. And actually this season, you look at those decisions late on that cost us against Arsenal. That's not tactics. That's not um, the shape of the team. That's not really his substitutions. That's the players not being prepared enough or experienced enough to deal with the extreme pressure that came in those final seven minutes against against a big side and getting a big scalp away from home. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you to a point. I do think that when you put seven defenders on, you're setting them up to be like, you're going into siege mode. You know, like th- th- there's something in that. And it's easy to be like, oh, it's not the tactics. But when you put when you put that amount of defenders on the pitch... You're not. You're hardly saying, "Oh, we're going to go and get another one," are you? You know, you, you're no. you're trying to bolt the lock, and uh, and I do think that there's there's something in that that you know with Fulham so under the cost, just piling defender after defender after defender onto the pitch, show it is a kind of mindset thing from the coach as well as as well as the players is going. You know, we're not getting out of this. This is backs to the wall, and there's ten minutes left. And, you know, Fulham are, are, are lining up on the edge of their own box being like, right, they do not come past this wall. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to see out for that amount of time against a team as talented as Arsenal, against any team in the Premier League, frankly, but again, especially against a team with as much talent in the ranks as Arsenal. So, yes, I think it's mental. And yes, I do think it's psychological. But I don't think that that, that is helping. I don't think throwing seven defenders onto the pitch is is exactly what, what Fulham are after because it's a strange... And look, we look, talked about the, this at the Villa game, right? That Scott didn't make any substitutions. I'm not suggesting that he... I'm not suggesting here that him making subs in the first place is a bad thing. I think freshening up at that point and changing things around is important for Fulham to try and to try and look at it and think, okay, how do you do this? But I do think that when you hit seven defenders onto the pitch with 10 minutes to go, you are saying to the players right, there's no way we're getting any more, defend for your lives. And that's basically what they then went and tried to do. And it does lead to panicked moments. It does lead to people not retaining possession. It does lead to the fact that Fulham were basically unable to hold onto the ball for those last seven minutes. Yeah, indeed. I think Jack's absolutely right. Um, I think that's that's the other side to it. There's definitely two parts. There's absolutely that, that tactical element to it where in all three of those those games, you've seen Fulham drop deeper. You've seen Fulham shut up shop. You've seen the changes 
or against Villa, the change is not as proactive as, as Villa was to, to deal with them. Or then you see that the Arsenal game where Joe Bryan comes on and you are forming essentially a back seven. And it, it does that. That's the message, isn't it? It's, it's two ways. It's, it's to say, look, we are going to shut up shop. We are going to be defensive because this is what's going to happen. Now, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. Is that a case of saying, I know this is going to happen because I don't think I think the players are naturally going to end up in this position and I'd rather be better equipped? Or is it the other way? And as, as Jack says, it just, inf- it just reinforces the mindset that actually, do you know what, we're going to come under pressure. Um, but it's, it's, it's both of those factors together. And, and that's, that's why you do end up losing these points, really. And there's not necessarily an easy solution because the flip side is, well, OK, you keep chasing for that second goal, but then you leave yourself open against what is quite a good team. So finding that, that right balance is what Fulham haven't been able to do. Yeah, indeed. And one final kind of bit of Fulham news for, from this week before we do preview the derby. Uh, Fulham and I think pretty much all clubs in in the Premier League and Football League are going to join in a social media boycott um, this weekend. I, I believe that there are other publications. Fulhamish is going to be joining in it. I think most of Fulham fan media is going to be joining in it as well. I've had a couple of conversations with the likes of Fulham Focus, Cottage Talk, Amien, Friends of Fulham, Jack and Loz, um, who, who are all going to take part and there's others as well. I'd just be interested to know your thoughts on the social media boycott and whether you think it will change anything i know i've got my views on it but i and i I don't think by the way that if you disagree with it then anyone's necessarily going to think bad of you i think it's got its pros and cons this kind of token gesture that is being put forward do you think it's got the ability to make real change uh jack i'll start with you if you want um i think it's a little bit insipid in in some ways um i'm glad that there is things being done so like, I think I think there is a level that some action is always better than no action um, in, in these regards. But I, I do think that there is a point to be made that if if we could, you know, we last week we saw UEFA and clubs threatening to boycott leagues, threatening to, you know, discuss, you know, throwing clubs out of tournaments when when they threaten to, to break away into their own. But when, you know, a Slavia Prague player racially abuses a Rangers player in the UEFA, in the Europa League, which is a competition that I hold incredibly dearly to my heart. You know, there, there is no, there's no talk of boycotts. There's no talk of sanctions. There's no talk of throwing people out of the competition. And there was nothing from the clubs in question who were going through. You know, it wasn't Arsenal and Man United and, and Roma and, and, and Villarreal saying, we're not playing in this tournament unless you throw them out because people are, you know, they're, they're wary of doing things like that. So I do think that there is a level of this that you have to you have to kind of hope that people are going to stand up harder but on the whole you know social media platforms are somewhere to, that that hatred is spread um and if this is the nod or the nudge that twitter and facebook and instagram need in order that they think that that, that there's something could be done to change the the methods of of reporting racism of of getting play, accounts banned for for racial abuse for, then then it's good it's a good thing if it gets you know 10 more of those accounts banned than would have been otherwise and and facebook and, and instagram and, and twitter wake up even the slightest bit to the abuse that's being hounded out that's being handed out on their platforms day by day then, then it's a good thing. So, so yes, uh, I, look, I, I want clubs to do more than this. I don't think, like you say, it's a token gesture. If it has real effect on on social media platforms, fantastic. And then let's see more steps. This can't, it can't be. This is our gesture, and and that's our gesture for the year. I think the, I think it is important 
purely from an awareness perspective as much as anything. And this does make a stronger impact than 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 just the the constant pointing out. I mean, it's just been relentless, um, player after player, um, coming out showing the the types of abuse they're they're receiving. Um, and that doesn't seem to have any impact on, on social media companies. It doesn't seem to have enforced any sort of change or action to change. Um, and if it means taking yourself off the platform, you know, these are people with immense numbers of followers. You know, these are people that bring people to the platform itself. Um, you know, if it means taking them off for, for a few days to raise the point and that will reach a lot of people, then that that's, that for me is is a good thing. But it can't, it can't be the only thing. It has to be met with some kind of change and it needs some kind of further enforcement now how you do that is is complicated um you know there's, there's the, the, one of the common sort of debates uh, concerning social media is concerns um I, having proving your identity to, to open an account whereas at times there are people who have anonymous accounts because by not having an anonymous account and being able to say what they're able to say um whether that be political or human rights or, or any other reason um having that element to their account would be limiting and suddenly you're affecting it in that way. So I don't think there are, there are easy solutions particularly to the, to the issue of social media abuse. Um, but, you know, I mean, what fundamentally is happening is that they're not enough is being done to stop it. Not enough is being done to intervene and to prevent this sort of, these sort of messages uh, impacting players and, and, and everyone else. It's not just that, you know, from, from media to, to everyday people, it's, um, it, that, you know, you often see it that, that copyright breaches will get taken down a lot quicker than than some forms of abuse. And when you do see those sort of elements, you, you do question it. And that's that's what these things are about. They're about trying to to force these companies to act. You know, what, why should someone go on their platform to experience and to enjoy it in whatever way they want, and yet their price for it is is to take abuse? Now, you can easily just say, don't use it. But why, why should they be hounded out? Why, why, why should they be deprived of the right to use it for, for you know, their social reasons, for their friends, for everything else? So um, it's, a, it's a difficult topic, but, you know, action needs to be done. And, you know, the, the boycott is a, is, a, is a good step forward. At first, when I saw it and I saw the clubs, uh, a few clubs coming out of, I think Swansea were one of the first clubs to do it for a weekend. I remember thinking it's a drop in the giant ocean that is is social media. I do think this collective action is impressive. I didn't think I'd see the day where all clubs on a certain weekend, an important weekend in the season, you know, where titles and promotions and relegations are starting to be decided, where they've actually gone, no, you know what, we're not going to post. If you want to follow the game, you can watch it or go on the website um I, I think is is really really impressive and i still don't believe social media companies do anything about racism because at the end of the day it doesn't cost anyone money really it doesn't cost anyone a dollar and i don't honestly think right i'm not some giant tech expert that would understand the exact specifics of doing it but if the technology is in place that you can spot a random twitter account um posting a video of a goal through their phone and you've got the automatic technology to be able to recognize that someone's done that and shut it down within hours, then how can you not have the technology to spot that a new anonymous account with zero followers and following two people is saying the N word or is sharing obscene messages? to anyone like how can that not raise a flag at someone at at twitter hq for them to go hang on we got a bad egg here and just shut it down 
no one should be using any of those words. And yes, I know that there might be ways of getting around those bots and stuff, and you're going to have to be constantly adapting your technology. But we live in a world where users are expected to report the crimes themselves. And then half the time, Twitter go, yeah, that doesn't break our regulations. And you're like, sorry, the person just wished my family would be burned in a house fire. How can that not be breaking you any of your regulations? And that's what I hope that this weekend does. You can call it tokenistic, you can call it pointless, but football is a big driver of traffic, particularly to Twitter. I don't know if Instagram and Facebook will notice, but particularly to Twitter, I think it is a massive driver of traffic and it's not just blowing football's self-importance. I think honestly, sports is a huge, huge market for Twitter. And, and I think hopefully, even if it's only in the UK, Twitter will notice. And if it even just means that one more meeting is had at Twitter HQ of how to combat this, then I think it's a worthwhile gesture and I'm really glad to see that also the rest of the Fulham community has come together to support the club in it this weekend. And it'll be a bit weird if Fulham do get a result this weekend against um, that lot of the road that none of us can celebrate or put some flame emojis when Mitrovic inevitably gets an 89th minute winner at the shed end. But that's how it has to be this weekend. And we'll just have to enjoy it in other ways, like with our friends um, and <laughs> with our family. Um, God forbid we can't tweet when uh, when Fulham, Fulham win this weekend. So yeah, that's my two pence on the matter. Um, we'll take a quick break and then we'll look ahead to this weekend's game. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack and Peter. Let's look ahead then to Saturday's game against um, Chelsea at the bridge, 5.30 on Saturday. It's live on Sky in the UK. And Jack, an interesting time for Chelsea. Um, They are chasing the top four. This is an important game for them, but they are also sandwiched in between two much, much more important games, which of course is Madrid in the semi-finals of the Champions League. They had a good result on Tuesday, one all away, not at the Bernabeu whatever the training grounds called. Oh, very, very nice. And um, they might rest some players, but I don't think they'll go for a full squad change, will they? Yeah, I I think they're going to have to rotate. Um, I was was watching the monsoon come down at the Di Stefano and and, and thinking maybe they'll get colds. Um, But I do think that's potentially a little bit optimistic <laughs> in, in in my thought process um look it was it was a tough game and and actually one all is potentially quite a good result for us because yes they're in a good position and they'll feel that they can progress um but also there's still a lot of work to be done um so so they will have to rotate this weekend the problem with that is that Chelsea squad is incredibly deep um and, and they have the pieces to rotate with if they need them um, and, and and then when you look at that and you think, OK, they will be able to do this and you look at how Tuchel has worked his squad this this year and look at how he rotated even for like the City game in the in the semi-final of the FA Cup. Um, he, he's basically got most things right. You know, the West Brom game aside, there's not many blots on Thomas Tuchel's copy book since he went in at Wallham Green. So, you know, you, you look at the the whole thing of, of what he's done and and how good Sadly, they have been over the last couple of weeks. And and I do think he'll ring the changes, but I am sadly not completely convinced that that's going to be enough. You know, the, the changes will know exactly where they are. We're going to look at, bear in mind, we're going to be looking at players who are not only playing for that, you know, domestic security of getting fourth place and, and trying to prove that, but also 
trying to play their way into a potential Champions League final 11. You know, they're, 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 these are players who will be looking to make their mark and be like, why am I being overlooked? I, I shouldn't be because if you'd played me, this is what I can do. And I worry that that rotation might hurt us as much as, as help us in some ways. I mean, Peter, do you think it's a good or a bad time to, to, to face Chelsea? Part of me thinks now as well that if Fulham are staying up this season, if we are to do it, and I think it's really, really unlikely... I think we have to win four out of five, which means we either have to win at Chelsea or we have to win at United, plus win the three winnable games. It's all very, very difficult. <sighs> it sounds mad to say that we have to get a result at Stamford Bridge, doesn't it? It sounds absolutely bonkers to say that it's a must-win game to go to Stamford Bridge and win, but it is, it is, sadly. You just talked yourself into resignation there. You listed that and then there was a very audible sigh. So, um, yeah, I think that sort of sums up how... <laughs> <laughs> how much of a challenge uh, this weekend is going to be? Um, I do, agree, I do agree. You're going to, you're looking at four wins, um, maybe three if if things elsewhere someone bombs entirely. But it's it's a really really tough ask at this point, and it, it, we are in extraordinary escape territory, really. Um, and I would have to start on 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 Saturday. But is it a good time to face Chelsea? I just don't know if there is a good time to to face Chelsea. I think. Jack made the point very, very well about how the players would be wanting to play into that Champions League team as well as fighting for the top four. Thomas Tuchel has got them extremely well organised. You know, they don't give goals away at all apart from against West Brom, which is unusual and will be intriguing to see how that sort of reflects this weekend. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the way they set up defensively, uh, the options they've got going forward, uh, even the rotation, you know, it's... You're looking at maybe a start for, for Havertz and Ziyech and, and Rhys James, who, who all came off the bench in, in Spain. So it's, it's, it's going to be a, a difficult task. The only hope is that the eye is off the ball. And, you know, there is fortune in that this game has landed between the two Real Madrid games because that's the big focus. That's what they'll be wanting to to focus on entirely, really. And yes, the top four is big, but those are the those are such important games for an, for an individual, for a player to, to want to be involved in. Um, and you know you, the, the flip side of that is you don't want to get yourself injured for those games, and that also plays on on players' minds too. Um, but the, the thing for Fulham is, you know, Fulham have been competitive most of, most of the season. They tend to have tight. We've talked about it earlier, single goal margins in matches. Chelsea have been very similar in that sort of respect. They don't give goals away. They keep things very tight, um, but they hold they hold really good control over matches. And how Fulham force their way into that, take the chances when they come. You know, that's that's the difference. It's been the difference all season, really. Um, and it matters more in these games. And I, I think when you're looking at Chelsea and United away, I, I don't know, United can, can have the potential to, to blow hot and cold. Uh, so I've, I've, I've looked at the Chelsea game as being the tougher one just because of how, how well Tupac has been playing. But if you, if you win at Stamford Bridge, that's a huge, huge um, boost for the team. And, you know, and then it just it makes makes uh, survival a possibility again because at the moment, as as your size showed, Sammy, it doesn't doesn't feel like that at the moment. No, I mean it would send a shockwave, Jack, to the rest of the relegation rivals. I mean, how do you think Scott needs to play it this weekend? Um, what kind of changes um, would you make, if any, from from that Arsenal game? 
Uh, try and swamp that midfield. I think that they might give N'Golo Kante a rest, given how good he was uh, on, on Tuesday night and and how important he is to this side. Um, so I would maybe try and swamp that midfield. I would maybe try and go with the three-man midfield of uh, of, of Angisa, Lamina and Harrison Reed all together, uh, especially given that the Ruben Loftus-Cheek can't play. Um, not that I would have probably started him either way, but that's not the point. Um, I'd go back to a back four. Um, I know they're going to play with a five, um, but I think you've got to try and you've got to try and push on that, and and got to try and and, and dominate the middle a little bit more here, and and, and try and make sure that there the spaces aren't there for them to to be picking passes through the middle. Um, so I would go Ariola, Aina, Tete, Anderson, Adarabio, Angisa, Lamina, Reed, uh, Lukman, Mitrovic, Bobby Reed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I think I, I can't see Mitrovic necessarily playing in this game. I think Parker will probably, based on form, and you look at how Fulham have set up in those those typical away games, they try to be more fluid in attack. And I, I think, you know, you bring in Caballero because of his ability to retain the ball. Um, I think he's done that very well and he's one of Fulham's best when it comes to that element of his game. Um Maybe a free of Lookman, Caballero, and 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 uh, Bobby Decadova Reed. Uh, Decadova Reed on the right, giving that flexibility for a five, which may be needed if Chelsea pin Fulham back um, with the way they set up with a three and and, and the wing backs um, on that right hand side. Of course, it could be could be Marcus Alonso after Chilwell played, and Alonso does like to get forward. So um, trying to trying to negate that threat, have that sort of dynamism, and maybe play Lukman through the middle, like like Fulham did against Manchester United at home. Um, Lukman showed he can finish. Um, I, I, you know, the, 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 maybe you say Madger, but I don't think Madger is as dynamic. Um, I think as Fulham may need uh, when they when they don't have the ball, and just being able to flood that midfield, as Jack says, will be really really important. And complementing that midfield, um, I do think it's a big game for someone like uh, Angisa. Uh, we gave him a lot of praise at the start of the season because of his performances. He's been in and out of the team since then, and it hasn't really had the impact that we. I think we all know that he he can have. Um, it's in these games, these big games. You know, he did well against Manchester City, I remember, and we haven't really seen that so much. Uh, did well against Leicester. You need him to stand up here. You need him to to take the ball and to drive with it and to bring Fulham up the field because without Loftus Cheek, uh, as much as he's been a lot of criticism um, the attacking impetus will, will fall on one of the three in midfield if, if Fulham go with a three so um, yeah especially when he looks tired to the summer you know if, if Fulham are going down I don't think he'll see himself in the championship yeah um, he, he's, he's you know he's lost a little bit of that early momentum I would say um, from this campaign and, tr- and trying to rebuild that you know that that's the go- goes for a lot of players in this Fulham team you know there's always the the full process that are the loan players are thinking about themselves coming into the summer and sure I'm, I'm sure they will be that will be at the back of their minds because you know they've got their careers to, to focus on but you know a lot of them have got points to prove still you know there's this is a squad full of players who haven't played in the Premier League properly and none of them will want a relegation on the CV and if you want to really make a mark it's in these games these big games so and Fulham need them to stand up uh, especially with, with time running out yeah, I, I actually would be tempted to stick with a similar lineup to, to what played against Arsenal. I know you say Madge is not that mobile, but I do just rate his ability to sometimes find a goal out of nothing. We haven't really seen it of late, but 
We obviously saw it in those two goals against Everton. We did see it against Spurs. Like everyone forgets, everyone thinks he only scored two goals. He scored against Spurs for the sake of a stupid VAR handball that was never a handball against Mario Lamina. Madja had a swivel and a finish and a great goal uh, against Tottenham. And also I was really impressed with how he stuck away that penalty against Arsenal. I know it's a penalty, but given how we struggled, it, it was nice to see. So... I'd be tempted. The only thing that I don't like about the lineup that we had against Arsenal is I do just think Harrison Reed for me deserves the, yeah. the start. And I don't like seeing him come off the bench, although he was very effective off the bench in that game, especially I thought he was the only per- person that looked like keeping us in that game. Um, his, his kind of tireless running gives uh, when he comes off the bench, gives him even more kind of motivation to, to run like a madman and, and put out fires all over the pitch for Fulham. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I'm with you there, Sammy. I think I think Reed. I, th- I wonder if if the Reed selection was just a case of you know Lamina scored goals, uh, scored a goal. Um, Reed hasn't necessarily. I mean, his impact. I think I was it West Brom where he came off and delivered that fantastic cross for Caballero shows that he can influence things in in the final third. So I think having him back in the team is is important, especially against this Chelsea team who are going to make Fulham work very very hard. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we'll see what happens um, this weekend at the Bridge. Uh, I don't think we can say we're expecting, but uh, always believing. You never know. Could this be the start of a great escape? It seems extraordinarily unlikely, but I- I'm sure we'll be watching with bated breath and uh, and a little bit of hope inside us. Um, I know that much of the hope has gone for, for, for many of you, but I still hold a, a very, very small amount. Okay, uh, that'll do for today. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday. We're still going to be doing a podcast this weekend, despite the, the social media blackout. It's very much a social media blackout, not a content blackout uh so Fulhamish will still be doing the podcast on Sunday uh looking back at that game at the bridge uh all that remains to be said is thank you Peter uh, no thank you Sammy it's been a pleasure as always great and uh, thank you very much Jack Collins thank you so much for having me as ever Sammy thank you Peter for all your insight um it's been fun I love Thursday Club um and I'll see you all soon oh very good okay right we'll be back on Sunday have a good bank holiday weekend uh here in the UK come on you whites. <laughs>